from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the CR's podcast. My name is Christian Ondar. I'm the chief economist at the Center for European Reform, dialing in from Berlin. And with me today are our guests from Paris, Agnès Benassé-Quere. She's chief economist of the French Treasury and a well-known economist in the overall European debate. Agnès, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted. And my colleague John Springford is dialing in from the UK. Welcome, John. Hi, Christian. Hi, Agnès. So today, um, the focus will be um, the economic recovery in Europe from the pandemic. Um, the IMF has recently published its economic forecast. And one of the outcomes was that the US and the UK's forecast was upgraded, while the European Union's um, economic forecast was downgraded. Now, the first thing I think at the moment on everybody's mind is uh, as a potential reason uh, that Europe is lagging behind those two, the US and the UK, in getting the vaccines out and getting shots into arms. Um, that risks, of course, prolonging the lockdowns and other restrictions on economic activity, which um, in turn is very costly. And then on the other hand, um, fast vaccinations now would probably do little to the overall containment policies that we're seeing across Europe, as we need to reach herd immunity before we can properly open up um, the economies. And if both the US and the EU say reach herd immunity sometime during the summer, Uh, when hopefully the virus is somewhat easier to contain, um, then the difference of a month or two may not matter that much in the end. So on that spectrum between vaccines, are, uh, slow vaccine roller is really an economic problem and uh, it may not be that bad. Where, John, where, maybe we start with you. Where on that spectrum are you? Um, well, your uh, arguments are, are very persuasive. I mean, on the, on the one hand, we know that lockdowns are extremely expensive for businesses that have to shut and obviously governments and ultimately taxpayers who are covering people's wages. Um, but the reason, the really big reason why I'm on the more expensive end of the spectrum that you laid out is because the biggest cost is obviously in lives and illness. Um, and the faster we, we can vaccinate everybody, the lower the deaths will be. Um, and the other point to make is obviously the new variants, the UK, South African and Brazilian variants, These should make us pretty nervous. Uh, half of all UK deaths have come since November, um, and that's possibly linked to the higher transmissibility of the new variant. So getting vaccines into arms means that um, we can get illness and death down, and that has to be our absolute priority. Um, and as we have known since the beginning of the pandemic, that there's no trade-off between health and the economy. If we get everybody vaccinated, then we can get the economy going as quickly as possible. Thanks, John. Agnes, the, the French Treasury has just published estimates on, on how much the lockdown costs in terms of economic activity. And Allianz Research also came out with something similar for, for Europe overall. And I think the verdict is clear that lockdowns are just very, very expensive. So that would suggest, as, as John said, uh, that speeding up the vaccine rollout is of the essence. Um, would you agree with that? Yes, of course. So obviously, I'm not uh, an epidemiologist, uh, neither an immunologist. Uh, so what I, I take it for from uh, from these people and uh, try to uh, figure out uh, what that, what is the impact on the economy so there are two ways of of seeing this uh, in the short term and so the very short term and the short term uh, 
in, in the very short term, it's clear that uh, in the EU, there is uh, a delay in vaccination programs uh, resulting from uh, shortages in the procurement of uh, the vaccines. Um, probably the delay may, will not be more than a month or so. And what is important is the share of the uh, elder uh, people uh, above 60 years old being vaccinated. So these people uh, represent, so in France, but it's quite the same in other countries with uh, small differences. It's about a quarter of the population, uh, but it's uh, over 85% of, uh, of the uh, hospitalizations due to, to COVID. So once you have vaccinated this population, uh, then a first step uh, will be um, uh, finished, which is uh, completed, which is uh, to uh, alleviate the burden of the hospitals. So the first reasons for lockdowns uh, will be uh, alleviated. Uh, of course, then, then there is a second issue, which is uh, that the virus is going to uh, continue its uh, circulation. And, uh, and obviously, uh, the, the, the British, the so-called British variant is more contagious. So uh, then the, the second uh, step, in my view, uh, is, will be over the summer, whether uh, it's possible to vaccinate uh, most of the population in order to reduce this circulation. Because here it, it's a quite a kind of different uh, objective. The objective is to, uh, for the, the rebound of the economy, uh, the first uh, domestically, but second, and this is very important for countries like Spain, Italy or France, uh, to uh, attract, to be attractive again for international uh, tourism, which is extremely important for the summer. Thanks. So, so um, if this lockdown is is taking longer now, um, uh, the European economies also need more support. I would think um, the US has announced a, a 1.9 trillion dollar uh, program to support the economy, despite rolling the, out the vaccines faster than the EU. Um, Germany has just agreed to a stimulus and support program of 9 billion. So Germany's is basically 0.5% of the US's. So it seems tiny. Um, I was just wondering, um, first of all, what, what, is your, what are your thinking on this? Do, does the economy, now that the lockdowns will take uh, longer and vaccinations take longer, a longer time, um, do the economies in Europe need more support to get through this through this period? How about the UK, John and, and, and Agnes? Uh, maybe you can comment on France. Um, do they need more uh, support? Or is the current level of support that we are giving our economies enough? Maybe, Agnes, you can start on, the, on France. So for sure, if the crisis lasts for a longer time, then there, there is a need for uh, additional support. But I would say this is emergency support. This is We are not talking about changing the recovery plan. And I, I really make the difference between the two. I think comparing the, the billions in terms of, uh, of emergency support misses a little bit of the point. I think the point is protecting other firms. So what we need to uh, look at is at the microeconomic level, whether uh, firms uh, are uh, about to uh, become insolvent. And this is something we are looking uh, very in a refined way. And also uh, in terms of uh, households, whether um, the lower end of the income schedule is uh, supported enough. So I would not compare directly the billions, but I would really compare maybe um, how this support is deployed, for instance, how firms uh, that are closed are compensated. Uh, is it a lump sum? It is uh, based on a turnover, pre-crisis turnover. Is it based on fixed costs? 
and what is the efficiency of the various programs rather than just comparing billions. It will be completely different when the economy opens up and if consumption and investment remain weak, then it's possible that additional support will be needed and a macroeconomic uh, approach will be warranted. Uh, but during the lockdowns, I don't think these macro uh, relationships uh, do. So, for instance, if you if you send a, a check to uh, to the population in order to consume and to go to the restaurants and the restaurants are closed, uh, this doesn't make sense. It will make sense after uh, after the crisis. Uh, can I just um, re- reinforce uh, um, the arguments that Agnes is making? The, we shouldn't. We can't really compare the U.S. to Europe very easily because um, the, the U.S. has had this kind of rolling program of stimulus bills. Um, we had one at the beginning of the crisis, one in the autumn, and now we're having a, a, an argument over another one now that, now that Biden has taken office. And as Anya says, these are about supporting people's incomes through the pandemic. Um, they're not about stimulating the economy and stimulating the recovery. Um, and I'd make the point that uh, there are some differences in Europe, too, about how these programmes have happened. So um, in France and Germany, as I understand it, uh, furlough schemes have been extended pretty much to the end of this year, maybe afterwards even. Um, whereas in the UK, for example, it is supposed to end in March. There will have to be an extension of that almost certainly because we're not going to be out of the pandemic by then. Um, so I totally agree with Agnes that the size of the programmes don't matter. It's what the programmes are doing uh, that really tells us what their effects are. And at the moment, it's all about supporting the supporting people. It's not about getting people back to work and back into restaurants. Okay, let, let's move on to the speed of the recovery because I think this is also on people's minds. Um, that is important, not just because we all want to get back to normal as quickly as possible, of course, but also because the sooner uh, we can recover and, and, and the more swiftly we can uh, return to full employment, uh, the less uh, long-term damage there will be. So, um, John, maybe we can start with you. How, how confident are you that we can get output quickly up once we can open up the economies and unemployment down? Well, if we compare where we are now to the Great Recession, we're, we're in better shape. You know, we haven't just had a financial crisis, which has kind of frozen the plumbing of the economy. Um, uh, households have been forced to save because they haven't got many spending opportunities. Uh, so we're not having this kind of credit crunch that's cascading from the financial system through to households and uh, as people are made unemployed. Um, so in that sense, we seem to be in pretty good shape. And so one would hope that we don't have the same disappointing recovery that we had um, uh, after after 2008-9. However, there are some things that we don't know. One is that uh, the forced savings that we've seen are quite unequally distributed. So rich people are doing much better than poor people because they tend to work in offices it's easy to do office work at home. They're less likely to have been furloughed or made redundant even. Um, so they tend to have savings. What do we know about rich people and savings? They are less likely to spend them when they have them. And we have some evidence of, of that from the Great Recession when the US stimulus checks were handed out to uh, everybody uh, in the US and rich people tended to save those windfalls more than poorer people. Um, and the other, the other thing that we don't know 
is um, how the pandemic is going to behave, we can be pretty confident that the vaccines work, even among the, the, uh, the mutations that we've seen. But there's always the risk that uh, in, say, developing countries, which are going to be slower to vaccinate their populations, that a new variant comes out. Um, and that, so there's going to be this lingering fear that we might end up with more infections, which might have an impact on people's uh, tendency to save um, precautionarily and also business investment. So there are some, so there are some unknowns. It's probably better than 2008-9, but we can't be absolutely certain of that. Thanks, Agnes. Would you agree that um, that it's you know that, that there are you know options and, and, and likelihood that it will be fast, but there are some some unknowns that um, that may hold it back. What what is your view? How how quickly do you think we can get output up? Uh, so yes, I agree with John. Uh, the general view is that uh, uh, at this stage, uh, this is not yet a financial crisis. So we know that the recovery from non-financial crisis is faster than from financial crisis. Um, because uh, there is less uh, debt overhang, although in the corporate sector there is going to be a debt overhang. Uh, so the, the big question is about uh, investment. And uh, so far we have some good news. Uh, investment, well, at least in France, investment is, uh, seems to be um, recovering quite, quite quickly. And uh, so I would say that among economists there is a divide between those who think that um, there would be a uh, scars from the crisis, not just in terms of debt overhang, but also in terms of risk aversion and precautionary savings and uh, weak investments, weak also weak exports of tourism. And uh, there is another strand uh, of uh, people who uh, think that the recovery could be very quick and they rely on what, ha what has happened in, for instance, in the beginning of the summer last year where uh, we've seen a recovery uh, very, very fast. So I'm quite in the second strand. Uh, I, I tend to think that the recovery could be quicker than we think. Uh, once, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the uncertainty concerning uh, the virus itself is uh, waived. And this, the, here we have a question mark because of the, of the new variants, whether uh, we can... Uh, tackle them in an efficient way or not. But if uh, these uncertainties are waived, uh, say, over the summer, then I'm quite confident about the second year of uh, the second half of the year. Excellent. So, well, this is this is uh, almost an optimistic take that we um, we will see a very swift recovery. And I think this is um, one of the things that people worry about is um, that, well, that might may be right that we have a very swift recovery uh, at the start. A sort of post-corona mini boom, but people tend to worry about the resilience of that recovery, right? So there is a there is a risk that after this um, sort of post-corona mini boom, um, that we go back to the same slow growth uh, we had before, the same structural headwinds uh, here. So once this uh, this post-corona boom peters out, we may be back to 2019 growth, which was not great, right? And we had low inflation and interest rates, um, low interest rates to go with it. Um, which are both a sign of weak demand. And, or, or there's also the case that to, to say, well, it could be even worse as to, uh, 2019 because there has been some damage from the pandemic, which will be unavoidable. Um, or others saying, well, it might well be better 
than we had in 2019 because we have seen sort of people adjusting their behavior, maybe a sort of breakthrough in, in, in the use of digital technologies that we've really made a leap forwards. Um, so wh what do you think? This, this, this period after this, uh, let's just assume there is a post-corona boom, um, how, how, how confident are you that this recovery is resilient, Agnes? Okay, so uh, so recovering the uh, pre-crisis uh, potential growth would already be an achievement um, because many people think that after such a big crisis, uh, potential growth will be uh, affected, so it would be slower. So I think the majority of economists think that we can recover the pre-crisis uh, growth. There are there are pros and cons. Uh, there are um, uh, ups, uh, risk in the upside and in, in the downside. In the upside, there is an acceleration of, uh, of um, innovation and uh, technological change. It's uh, very uh, material. Uh, we see it. Uh, on the downside, there is a risk of uh, so-called zombification of the economy with uh, firms uh, staying in the market, but with uh, too much debt, so not investing, and uh, this will uh, derive a slow growth. So far, there's no zombification. So we don't see that those firms that are going bankrupt um, are less, uh, are more productive than the, they used to be. Uh, well, in, in, we will uh, see that uh, later on, probably in 21. Uh, and we don't see any impact on of uh, public support uh, on uh, the distribution of productivity of those firms that are at risk of bankruptcy. So the support that is delivered by governments so far has been quite neutral in that respect. And there could be still uh, a cleansing effect, a positive cleansing effect of the crisis. But on the downside, we also have uh, the... Um, human capital effect. So the fact that uh, uh, students uh, have uh, poor uh, curriculum uh, these, year, these months, it's very difficult for them to study. And we have dropouts uh, from school. We will have dropouts and difficult integration of the new generations into the labor market with possible hysteresis effects. So this is also on the downside. And of course, on the downside, we also have the public debt overhang, the fact that uh, fiscal policy may be constrained in the coming years. So, yes, there are arguments in favor of uh, uh, higher uh, potential growth. Uh, there are some arguments with low, for lower potential growth. And on balance, I think it's uh, the, the best we can say is that uh, there will be no net impact on potential growth. Although there could be uh, an impact on the level of, of the GDP, of course. This means that the level of GDP will be lower. We estimate it could be lower by a little more than 2% uh, compared to the pre-crisis trend. Okay, and from, from this slightly lower level, then a, a, a path in terms of potential growth uh, going forward as before. Um, John, um, how, about, how about you? The, the, the resilience of the recovery does matter, but it also depends on sort of how we design policies to make it more resilient. Is that, do you, would you agree? Yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, Agnes's laying out of the issues is, uh, you know, as ever, very clear and perfect, and I don't have much to add, apart from uh, just one possibility, which is that we know that uh, fiscal consolidation after the financial crisis uh, was damaging to growth in Europe. We can argue about whether, it would you know, the extent to which it was necessary, how, whether it was too early and too fast and so forth. Um, but, but we had weak demands, weak inflation, low interest rates, 
Um, and there's a question mark about whether that kind of fed into expectations about low future demand for investors and was one of the reasons why investment was weak and potential growth was low. Um, the recovery fund could mean some quite substantial public investments um, that will raise growth and demand by you know 2% a year potentially in the recipient countries um, over the first half of this decade. Um, so that's something that's pretty positive. And on the policy side, it's key not to consolidate too early, in my view. Um, it's better to err on the side of inflation, which is the true binding constraint. It's very unlikely that we'll have a debt strike by the bond vigilantes, not least because the ECB is keeping a lid on borrowing costs. Um, and in terms of when we do start the consolidation, it seems pretty important to me that we shield poor people's consumption from tax rises if we can. Um, because as I wrote last week, an unequal recovery could be pretty politically explosive. Poorer people have been more likely to get COVID and are more likely to be furloughed and lose their job. Um, so we need to do some thinking about how we can um, repair the public finances if there is a, a, a sizable repair job to do um, and, and do it in a way which is least damaging to uh, people who are on lower incomes. A couple of couple of things that one could do, equalise tax rates on earned income and capital. Uh, richer people earn a lot of capital and yet tax rates on it is often low, lower than earned income in Europe. Um, uh, increase wealth taxes potentially, although there's question marks about how one does that. Um, and then finally, possibly think about raising minimum wages. Um, the US under Biden is experimenting with that. Uh, the UK has done some pretty big rises recently um, and the evidence suggests that you can get up to about 60% of the median uh, income with a minimum wage before it has uh, a really notable effect on, on employment and many European countries are below that. Um, so my takeaway is we don't know yet about the extent to which consolidation is going to be necessary and how big that will be. We should do it late and we should try to shield poorer people's consumption uh, from any tax rises that we enact. For the last little bit of segment, uh, let's turn to the recovery fund. You mentioned it, um, uh, John. It is a very sizable package um, and the reform and investment plans are being drafted. And um, I took a closer look at the Greek one uh, for, for a CR publication and it looks pretty good in terms of focus and spending plans. There, so there is a lot of potential uh, therefore, a transformational impulse, which can can raise the the, the potential rate of growth. Um, I, I also have a question on the on the on the timing of the recovery plan. So there was a lot of discussion about the speed with which we can get that spending uh, on the road, as it were, um, that we get it out as quickly as possible. Um, but there are clearly limits on how fast this can be spent productively. So some delay in spending such a large amount of money of investment funds is, of course, um, unavoidable. But maybe in the end, that is not that big a deal, because if we look through the phases of the recovery, we will have a difficult period until the summer. There may be a sort of post-corona boom, which maybe takes a uh, half year, nine months, maybe even a year. Um, and the recovery fund spending seems to come online from the end of or mid or end of 2022 properly. Um, so this could be actually quite well-timed in terms of supporting uh, the recovery further through this maybe slightly softer patch, patch um, after the mini boom uh, peters out. Um, and the other question is, 
we were all quite happy, I think, that the Europeans agreed to such a very sizable fund. Um, but um, considering that the pandemic is taking longer, do we still think the size of the fund is enough? And is there any chance that we can we can still beef it up? Um, Agnes, what, what do you think? Is, is the timing of the recovery fund maybe not, not that bad? Um, and, and is there any, any chance we can increase the size over time? So I can give you the experience of France in practice. Um, what is happening in France is that the recovery, so the next generation EU program is being front-loaded um, so as to deliver already in 2021. Actually, it has already started in 2020 in terms of the youth programs. But in 2021, uh, the investment part is going to be uh, rolled out and uh, there has been a call for proposals in terms of projects and the selection criteria, the main one of the, there were two uh, criteria for selection. Once One was on the cost-benefit uh, balance in terms of uh, energy uh, uh, gains. And the other one was the capacity to pass the markets uh, by the end of December 21. So those projects that were not ready were excluded. So we are quite confident that uh, something like uh, 40 to 50% of the investment uh, part of the recovery program uh, will, be, uh, will uh, deliver in 2021. Um, although, of course, the payment uh, may be later, the payment of the firms co may come later, but the decisions, uh, the, the selection of the firms uh, will be uh, in 2021. So in our view, Uh, this uh, recovery program will um, have an Im a quite significant impact in 2021, something like 1.5% so, uh, of uh, GDP. So meaning that uh, this will increase the level of GDP compared to what it would have been without the program by uh, something like 1.5%. And it will be mainly based on, in, on the EDs investments and also in 2022. But then uh, the later years will be uh, mostly supply side policies, tax cuts and innovation policies. Uh, and in the longer run, what we can expect is only supply side policies to have an impact. So I would say yes. yes. And I think it's too early to say whether we would need an additional recovery plan. Uh, let's, let's deliver on the first one and see what happens. And if... Uh, If there is a lack, if, if a consumption doesn't recover, if private investment doesn't recover, then it's time to, uh, to, to think about a, a second one. We, and I think the situation in Europe is quite different from the US. We should be uh, careful not to import uh, the American ideas directly. Um, so in, uh, public investment has been weak in recent times, but still, uh, still there's not such accumulation of disinvestment as in the US. So we, we need to be uh, very, and it's the same for me, the minimum wage. Um, I understand that in the US, uh, raising the minimum wage, uh, uh, there are studies showing that it doesn't hurt uh, unemployment because of the, the low uh, level uh, of uh, the minimum wage initially, and also because of the flexibility of the labor market. Uh, it, it may be different. So I would not say that, for instance, in France, raising the minimum wage could, would be completely contradictory with all efforts uh, to uh, reduce unemployment, the unemployment rate for the youth, which we know is extremely dependent of the level of the minimum wage. So, and also uh, talking about taxation uh, is really premature and it could trigger some Ricardian effects. So uh, it could go against uh, the, the recovery uh, program. So I would uh, refrain from entering into this discussion for now. 
Well, thank you so much both for a very interesting discussion on the economic recovery. Agnes, John, I um, I, I come away um, slightly more optimistic than I came in um, because I, I do see I do see some potential for the for the upside and sort of the um, the the, um, the immediate uh, post corona recovery and then the the resilience going forward. But there's still plenty to discuss on how policy wise to make sure that this uh, really comes comes to pass. Um, thank you both. And um, to all of you, thank you for tuning in. And um, remember to subscribe to the CR podcast and your podcatcher uh, if you like it and, and, and pass on the good word. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.